Did you know that in the 1800s, doctors didn't use gloves or sterilization when they performed surgeries? They literally would just walk in off the street and start surgering away. Maybe that's why so many people died. Well, you can thank Johnson and Johnson and Johnson, the three brothers who started J&J, to help get the word out that sterilization was important. What's up, everybody? Gen X Dividend Investor here. Today, in my 23rd stock reveal video, I'll be doing a deep analysis of Johnson & Johnson, my third largest dividend stock by portfolio value of the 25 I own. That means that after this, I only have two stocks to go. And if you are somebody who likes this video, or J&J, then band-aid up that like button as a thank you to me for making this extensive and free deep analysis video. Also, I wanted to thank you for subscribing and liking and commenting and even sharing my videos with your friends. A bunch of you have been guessing what my number one stock would be, and many of you guessed J&J, including Hidden Freedom Investing, Blood Phantom 81, Ryan Giffen, Ruben V79, Info Ranker, That Dividend Guy, David Caruana, AJS, Andre M, Treason Sky, Jonas Gantner, Maximino Alvarez, Next Financial Chapter, Polish Fish, UFC Go Knights, Independent Investor, W Brew, Lewis 1M, Schwacker 07, Tony Quajo, Zian, AccuCats, Coda1850, Newbie Sane, Jason Ponte, MP the Entrepreneur, Andre M, Economic Lifestyle Investing, and Adam Testusco. J&J is a great guess, and would have been accurate at one point in time, but as the market fluctuates, I've had different positions take the top spots as you probably have noticed how some of my positions have moved around since I started doing these videos. My guideline is to keep it so that my largest position is less than 10% of my portfolio. So it is a great guess, but as of the day I'm filling this, it's not the right answer. And since we're almost at number one, I'm not going to be adding any more people to my tracking spreadsheet for what my largest stock by portfolio value is. Also, if you have watched some of my other videos, you will know I love puzzles. I also like misdirection to make my little games harder to solve, so I might have put some misdirection in my previous videos to throw you off as to what my top stocks are. Or maybe I didn't. Maybe I've left clues to other secrets. Only time will tell. What you might find could surprise you. It might just be your golden ticket. Okay, and I've had some folks send me their portfolios asking me for my thoughts on them, so I thought that down the road I could start up a new series where I review and compare portfolios. Don't take it as financial advice, just take it as fun where some random person over the internet gives their two cents on things. I'll assume you want to remain anonymous unless you tell me you're fine being public. Maybe we'll have the people in the community vote on which portfolios they like more if I do a comparison. So if you'd like to submit your portfolio for me to review, then just email me at gen.x.dividend.investor at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram whatever details of your portfolio you are fine sharing. Make sure you double check the email and send it to the right place. And if you ever get a response from me, double check that's where it's from because there's a lot of scammers out there. Now you can send me screenshots or videos or a simple email or a link to a spreadsheet that has your tickers and how much each ticker represents in your overall portfolio. Feel free to include more information if you're open to sharing it, such as how many shares you have and when you bought it and such. Whatever works. At minimum, I need a ticker and what percentage of the portfolio that ticker represents. Maybe I'll keep an all-time best list of portfolios that you can see in a Google Doc. Okay, now let's dive into my portfolio and then I'll do a deep analysis of Johnson & Johnson. Okay, here we are in a copy of my portfolio where I've removed out the final two companies. So let's take a look. This sector right here is healthcare and it's 13.3% of the portfolio and that's Johnson & Johnson, AbbVie, and Pfizer. 
And then going clockwise, we have consumer staples food beverages with Pepsi and Coke at 14% of the portfolio. Right here is Duke and Southern Company, utility sector at 12.1%. Here we have real estate with O at 6.9%. And then this one right here is consumer staples, household goods with Procter & Gamble, Kimberly Clark, Colgate, Palmolive at 15.6%. This right here is Industrials with 3M, Leggett, and Cat at 12.2%. This is Communication Services with AT&T at 6.4%. And this is Consumer Discretionary, which is McDonald's, Starbucks, Home Depot, and Disney at 10.7%. This right here is Energy at 5.4% with Chevron and Exxon. And then we have Financials here with Goldman Sachs and Travelers at 3.5%. We see that I have 852 shares of Johnson & Johnson. It is green as of the time I'm filming this. It's gone up in the last 365 days, which is why this is also green. Current PE is around 28.5, forward PE 16.5. It's in the healthcare segment. It currently is about 8.98% of my portfolio. My guideline here is I like to keep my allocations under 10% for any single position. Annual dividend, $3.80. I kind of put this in here. It shows when they tend to increase their, their dividend and the subsequent pay date. The actual next dividend payout date for Johnson & Johnson is March 10th. It has a dividend yield of 2.54% as of today. Three-year dividend CAGR is 6.3%. Five-year dividend CAGR is 6.4%. And the 10-year is at 7%. Manually, I calculated the five-year dividend CAGR at 6.4%. That makes the portfolio's average weighted five-year dividend CAGR at 7.1%. And the portfolio's average weighted dividend yielder or the portfolio starting yield at 3.22%. of $127,500 about in J&J, &J, and that drips $3,238 a year. So that brings the portfolio value up to 1.42 million and dripping $45,748 a year. Good payout ratio, 42%, and awesome consecutive increasing dividends of 57 years with no cuts or delays. That makes the portfolio's average weighted years of increasing dividends at almost 40 years. Uh, it is an aristocrat and a king. Beta is at 0.71, so the portfolio's average weighted beta is 0.6. Market cap, a big one at 394 billion, which makes the average weighted market cap of 171 billion for my portfolio. Let's jump into the dividends. Okay, so these are the dividends I've received in January. So Pepsi, $702. Realty Income, $284. Legend Platt, $373. Kimberly Clark, about $558. And about $101 from Disney. Bringing the dividends received in January for the stocks I've revealed at $2,019.23. And then if we look at Q1, we can see how they've paid out in January. And I'll update this quarter as uh, the others come in. Okay, so now it's time for another deep analysis. Johnson & Johnson, ticker J&J, &J, is a 134-year-old, $392 billion market cap, 
$82 billion revenue, 134,000 employee American multinational corporation that develops medical devices, pharmaceutical and consumer packaged goods, and is one of my favorite dividend kings in the world. They service more than 1 billion patients each day. They have around 250 subsidiary companies and they operate in 60 countries with products sold in over 175 countries. That's amazing considering that there are only 195 countries in the world. 193 countries that are part of the UN and two countries that are so-called non-member observer states, which are the Holy See and the State of Palestine. The Holy See, also called the See of Rome, is the jurisdiction of the Pope. Now J&J has a slew of products you would recognize, such as Band-Aids, Tylenol, Johnson & Johnson's Baby Shampoo, Clean & Clear Facial Wash, AccuView Contact Lenses, Neutrogena Skin & Beauty Products, Neosporin, Benadryl, Bengay, Pepsin, Motrin, Mylanta, Listerine, Rembrandt Toothpaste, Rolaids, Splenda, Visine, and a bunch of others. We actually have a ton of those in our bathroom cabinet. J&J is an amazing company. They hold a triple A rating from Standard & Poor's. Now the S&P 500 index puts out a credit rating for some of the biggest companies in the world. The highest possible rating is the AAA S&P Global Rating, which represents a very high credit rating, which means they have a very strong ability to meet all their financial commitments. J&J is ranked so highly that their AAA credit rating is only held by one other US company in the world. Can you guess who that is? Who do you think? The other company is Microsoft. In fact, J&J and Microsoft are so highly ranked that they are the only US-based non-financial companies that have higher credit ratings than the USA itself. That's right, J&J has a higher credit rating than our country. Incredibly strong credit. And this is a big change in the US. In the 1990s, there were over 60 public companies that were rated AAA. Companies like 3M, Chevron, Exxon, Procter & Gamble, and Pfizer were all AAA rated. But by 2020, there were only two left, Johnson & Johnson and Microsoft. Okay, let's jump into J&J's innards. They have three business segments. Number one is consumer. The consumer segment includes a broad range of products used in baby care, oral care, beauty, over-the-counter pharmaceutical, women's health, and wound care markets. So this includes products like Listerine, Neutrogena, Tylenol, Band-Aids, and others. These products are marketed to the general public and sold both to retail outlets and distributors throughout the world. Their number two segment is pharmaceuticals. The pharmaceutical segment is focused on six therapeutic areas. Number one is immunology, which is like rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease and psoriasis. Number two is infectious diseases and vaccines for things like HIV AIDS. Number three is neuroscience, which is about mood disorders and neurodegenerative disorders and schizophrenia. Number four is oncology, so think about prostate cancer and hematologic malignancies. Number five is cardiovascular and metabolism, so things like thrombosis and diabetes. And number six is pulmonary hypertension, which are things like pulmonary arterial hypertension. Medicines in this segment are distributed directly to retailers, wholesalers, hospitals, and healthcare professionals for prescription use. And then number three is medical devices. The medical devices segment includes a broad range of products used in orthopedic, surgery, and interventional solutions, both cardiovascular and neurovascular, and eye health fields. These products are distributed to wholesalers, hospitals, and retailers, and used principally in the professional fields by physicians, nurses, hospitals, eye care professionals, and clinics. J&J works to maintain an industry-leading pipeline of innovative medicines to ensure appropriate growth and its stability. 
Investing in research and development is key to J&J's success. Here's a chart from Visual Capitalist that showed the top companies' R&D expenditures in 2017 as compared to 2004. We see Merck number 10 and J&J at number 13 on this list. In 2018, $10.8 billion was invested in research and development and $900 million was spent on acquisitions. Let's see where J&J is from an industry and sector perspective. So we see that they're in the healthcare sector and in the pharmaceuticals and healthcare equipment and supplies industries. Okay, let's check out who the largest institutional holders of Johnson & Johnson are. We see that Vanguard is number one with about 222 million shares worth about $32 billion, which is about 8.5% of outstanding shares. The largest single shareholder of J&J that I could find with 481,000 shares worth over $70 million was Alex Gorsky. That means he could drip almost $2 million a year. Okay, let's look at some of the big players in the pharma space by market cap and by number of consecutive years of increasing dividends. I use data from dividend.com and Google. So we see that Johnson & Johnson is number one at $393 billion market cap at 57 consecutive years, followed by Roche at $291 billion in zero consecutive years, Novartis at $242 billion in one, GlaxoSmithKline at $239 billion in one, Merck at $232 billion and 8 consecutive years, Pfizer at $224 billion and 10 years, Abbott Laboratories at $157 billion and 47 years, Bristol-Myers Squibb at $156 billion market cap and 10 consecutive years, Amgen at $143 billion and 9 years, Eli Lilly & Co. at $134 billion and 5 years, AbbVie at $130 billion and 47 years, Sanofi at $68 billion and 2 years, AstraZeneca at $67 billion in zero years, and Bayer at $20 billion in zero years. Since I've already done videos on Pfizer and AbbVie, and somewhat Abbott Laboratories since they were kind of tied to AbbVie, I thought I'd use Merck as the competitor in this video, since it is part of the elite $200 billion market cap pharma club, and they've had eight years of consecutively increasing dividends, unlike the others. Merck & Co, ticker MRK, is a $232 billion market cap, $42 billion revenue, American multinational pharmaceutical company. The company was established in 1891 as the United States subsidiary of the German company Merck, which was founded in 1668 by the Merck family. You heard me right, 1668. How many companies can you name that have been around since the 1600s? I'm talking over 350 years. Okay, let's see how J&J and Merck are ranked in terms of most effectively managed companies in America per the Drucker Institute rankings. Here we see that J&J is more effectively managed than Merck per their findings. J&J is ranked in the top 10 in the world at number 8 on the list between IBM and Intel. Merck is ranked at 32 under Boeing and above Altria. So awesome. Please watch my Procter & Gamble video if you'd like to learn a bit more about the Drucker rankings. Let's check out how J&J and Merck compare on Fortune's lists. We see that J&J is ranked at 37 and Merck is at 76 on the Fortune 500. J&J is below State Farm Insurance and above IBM. Merck is underneath Liberty Mutual Insurance Group and above Honeywell. So both are massive U.S. companies. Let's see how they rank compared to all companies in the world. Here we see that both J&J and Merck make the list of the 500 largest revenue companies in the world. J&J is at 109 on the list, below State Farm Insurance but above Electricité de France. Merck is at 285 and is below Lufthansa but above China Foreign Group. Please watch my Legend Plot video if you want to hear some fascinating facts about the top 10 companies in the world. Let's see how they rank on Fortune's most valuable brands list. 
So in a world where image is everything, unfortunately neither Johnson & Johnson nor Merck make this elite top 10 list. Let's see if either of them made it onto the top 100 of Fortune's world's most admired companies. We find that J&J is ranked at an incredible number 17 in the world, underneath American Express at 16 and above Singapore Airlines at 18. In 2019, Johnson & Johnson received the honor of earning the number one spot on Working Mother's annual list of 100 best companies. They assess companies on a variety of factors, such as their parental leave and if they provided access to affordable childcare. That's awesome. After having two kids, I can tell you that I really appreciate and value companies that help parents out. Okay, let's jump into a history of Johnson & Johnson. To understand how Johnson & Johnson came into existence, we have to go back to the 1800s. This was a time when doctors didn't realize the importance of working in a German bacteria-free sterile environment. In the 1800s, surgeons were not required to wash their hands. In fact, they took pride to have stains on their unwashed operating gowns as a show of their experience. But along came a British physician named Joseph Lister, who became Sir Joseph Lister, and he became aware of a paper published by the French chemist Louis Pasteur showing that food spoilage could occur if microorganisms were present. This made him think that human wounds could similarly get worse if bacteria and the like were present. He also learned that there were chemicals that could stop rotting that was often seen in railway ties and in ships. He started testing different things out and came to realize that using certain chemicals on his surgical instruments, along with on human wounds, would reduce the incidence of gangrene. So Mr. Lister shared his findings about how surgery should be sterile, but the doctors of the time didn't believe him. In fact, some medical journals mocked his progressive ideas and warned the community against his teachings. Some American surgeons who also didn't believe in what he was saying invited him to speak at the 1876 Philadelphia Exhibition Medical Congress, hoping that it would further discredit him. Regardless, he accepted their invite to speak and he traveled to Philadelphia. In the audience was Robert Wood Johnson, who got inspired when he heard Lister's speech. He decided the opportunity was ripe for him to start a company focused on sterile surgery techniques. He teamed up with his brothers, James Wood Johnson and Edward Mead Johnson, and the three brothers formed Johnson & Johnson. Why they didn't call it Johnson Johnson & Johnson, I don't know. They invented a slew of products. Their first business idea was to create ready-to-use surgical dressings. After that, they invented first aid kits, initially purchased by railroad workers, but then purchased by everyone. They also invented disposable sanitary napkins. The idea for Band-Aids came to J&J after one of their employees' wives was using cotton and tape to cover up a minor injury she sustained while cooking. So J&J invented a slew of the products that are being used today. In 1893, J&J was presented with a certificate of excellence at the Chicago World's Fair for their improvements in sterile equipment. At the fair were Thomas Edison as well as Nikola Tesla, along with modern innovations such as moving walkways, the zipper, and the Ferris wheel. During the Spanish-American War of 1898, J&J's products were used on the first hospital on water, a naval vessel. This was the first time surgery with antiseptic was used at sea, made possible due to Johnson & Johnson. As time went on, J&J continued to innovate as well as acquire innovative companies. In 1959, they acquired McNeil Laboratories, the company that had invented Tylenol. In 1961, J&J acquired Belgium's Janssen Pharmaceutica, which was a company led by Dr. Paul Janssen, who was recognized as one of the most innovative and prolific pharmaceutical researchers of the 20th century. J&J's products were being used everywhere. Heck, a NASA engineer even used J&J's baby powder on Apollo rocket launches to help enable an instrument covering to slide more easily. It worked so well they decided to use the baby powder on all future Apollo launches. But in 1982, tragedy struck, which some call the Tylenol crisis. At the time, Tylenol was J&J's most successful over-the-counter product in the US. 
They had over 100 million people in the US that were using it and their sales were around 20% of J&J's profits. It was almost 15% of their sales growth. Tylenol had almost 40% market share at the time, outselling their competition of Excedrin, Anison, Bufferin, and Bayer combined. It was so successful that if they had split off Tylenol into its own company, it would have been in the top 50% of Fortune 500 companies. Amazing. But someone or a group of people replaced Tylenol capsules with cyanide-laced capsules and they ended up on the store shelves of a half a dozen or so pharmacies and stores in Chicago. My understanding is that seven people died from this tragedy. The first question J&J's management asked was what could they do to protect the public? They immediately reached out over a variety of media channels to tell everyone not to consume any type of Tylenol product. They also had Tylenol removed from store shelves in and around Chicago. Of course this cost J&J millions of dollars, but the public perception of J&J was that they were a company that was also a victim of a terrible crime, but were doing the right thing. J&J also put out a 1-800 hotline for consumers to call with concerns or information. Management also established a communication channel for news organizations to receive daily updates about the crisis. J&J held press conferences at their corporate headquarters, set up live television streams, and went on popular shows like 60 Minutes to alert people and to update them. J&J quickly changed their pill containers to make them tamper-proof, thus becoming the first company to innovate protective packaging in such a manner. What J&J management did became the model for corporate crisis management going forward. They did the right thing of focusing on people over profit. Over time, Tylenol again became a popular product and J&J continued to acquire companies and grow. Okay, let's look at some of their current business strategies. J&J's strategies are aligned to their credo, which is foundational to all that they do. I couldn't find specific articulated strategies for 2020, so I'll share the ones I reverse engineered by analyzing them. Number one are their supplier and procurement strategies, designed to ensure their suppliers deliver high quality, compliant products and services at a fair cost. They want to do business with suppliers who understand emerging trends and plan their business accordingly, and that collaborate with J&J to successfully bring useful innovations to the marketplace. Number two is a diversification strategy. J&J has purchased 70 different companies in the past decade, which helps ensure J&J operates across a broad set of arenas. Number three is a market power strategy, which utilizes economies of scope and synergies within their company portfolio to enable growth. For example, the Band-Aid product utilizes a material developed and used by their hospital supply company to create their new liquid Band-Aid product. Number four is an international growth strategy. J&J sells products around the world, and around half of their annual revenue comes from non-US markets. This strategy also helps enable cost reduction via standardization of products across the globe. Number five is a strategy of divesting businesses not aligned to their strategic goals. For example, in 2014, they sold off their blood testing unit called Orthoclinical Diagnostics for over $4 billion. Their number six strategy is aligned to internal development. They want autonomous business units and divisions that are entrepreneurial and are innovative. Their number seven strategy is around capital allocation. This complex strategy has a variety of priorities, including to fund internal growth with R&D as well as with selling and marketing efforts, to deliver a competitive dividend to shareholders, to target mergers, acquisitions, and licensing agreements to create long-term value creation for shareholders and other stakeholders, and finally, to identify other ways to return value to shareholders, such as through prudent stock buyback programs. They are currently executing against a $5 billion share repurchase program. Finally, the number eight strategy I identified was one of multi-channel growth. They are seeking ways to grow from working with big box retailers to leveraging e-commerce more and better, all of which helps their customers more. Okay, let's jump to their financials. Now there are four key financial areas I like to understand when I'm analyzing a business, and they are number one is the company growing, 
Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Number three, do they have too much debt? And number four, how's their profitability? Let's start with number one. There are six main things I like to review when answering the question, is a company growing? And they are number one, is revenue growing? Number two, are earnings growing? Number three, is equity growing? Number four, is cash flow growing? Number five, is the dividend growing? And number six, is the stock price growing? I also like to review how shares outstanding are trending. So let's start with number one of six. Let's look at the revenue growth history for both Johnson & Johnson and Merck on Macrotrends.net, Guru Focus, Yahoo Finance, and Zacks. Johnson & Johnson's revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $82 billion, a 0.4% increase year-over-year. Year. Their 2021 estimate is for $85.6 billion. Merck revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $46 billion, a 10.2% increase year-over-year. Year. Their 2021 estimate is for $49.8 billion. So I like J&J's continual uptrend here. I didn't look into it, but my guess is that Merck did an acquisition around 2010 which enabled that huge step up in revenue, followed by relative flattening. One awesome fact I read in a recent J&J presentation is that 25% of their sales in the last five years have come from new product launches. That means their strategies are paying dividends, lol. I also read that 70% of their sales come from being number one or number two in global market share. Let's dive into their revenue composition. So I pulled this data from a variety of sections of their 2018 10K. One area for growth for J&J has come from increased organic sales. Currency fluctuations have also been beneficial for revenue growth, though pricing has applied some downward pressure. We see that US represents about 50% of their sales, so it's great to see such strong international revenue. We also see that pharma is their biggest segment, at about 50% of revenue, followed by medical devices at slightly over a quarter, and then consumer. Pharma has gradually been trending up. So this might be surprising to find out that pharma is the biggest segment, rather than consumer, which is most of the products we keep in our homes. This is also why Merck is a good competitor to use in this analysis, though Merck is a much larger percentage of their revenue coming from pharma, which is another reason why I love J&J. They have a great diversified revenue base. In pharma, we see that immunology and oncology segments are their major contributors to revenue, and both have been growing. In medical devices, we see that surgery drives the majority of sales, and they have been growing as well. Consumers being driven both by beauty and over-the-counter, both of which have had positive growth trends. Please feel free to pause and dig into the specifics of revenue trends by product area, if you're so inclined. I think there's another macro socioeconomic trend which J&J will benefit from, and that is from the world's aging population. Look at this interesting view from Visual Capitalist. We see that around the world, the population is getting older as medical technologies and our understandings of health are improving. This global shift will mean that there will be investment opportunities that capitalize on that age trend. Okay, let's look at J&J's net income trending over time and compare that to Merck's. So number two of the six are earnings growing. Johnson & Johnson's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $14.2 billion, a 818% increase year over year. This huge increase was due to the uncharacteristic dip followed by a return to the normal trend line. This dip was due to the new corporate tax bill that caused J&J to owe some taxes in that particular year. Their 2029 estimate calls for $9.08 billion. Merck's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $9.3 billion, a 178% increase year-over-year. Year. Their 2020 estimate is for $5.5 billion. Another item that I sometimes like to check is if a company can easily cover their interest payments with their profits. And as a relatively and normally financially conservative, debt-averse investor, I like seeing that J&J easily covers. Okay, let's dig into their profits. We see that pharma is their biggest contributor to their earnings at almost 70% of their total. 
Their consumer segment represents about 13% of their profit, and we see medical represents about a quarter of their earnings. Okay, on to number three of six, is equity growing? We see the Johnson & Johnson's at 58.2 billion, and Merck is at 26.9 billion. Neither have great trends here. I'd rather see them both continually increasing. J&J looks better than Merck, which has been on a continual decrease for years. Okay, let's move on to number four of six, is cash flow growing? To answer the question, is a company growing? Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about cash flow nuances. We see that both of them have solid and increasing free cash flows, with J&J's being insane. Their TTM is almost $20 billion. Wow. Johnson & Johnson is just a cash cow. Okay, now let's move on to number five of six, is the dividend growing? J&J is definitely committed to their shareholders, which I love seeing. In 2018, they returned back almost $10 billion in dividends. We see J&J in the upper left and Merck on the right. J&J has an incredible dividend growth trend line. Merck's is good for the relatively few years they've been consecutively increasing their dividend. We see that both of their share prices have increased in the last 365 days as denoted by their green spark lines. We also see that J&J's PE is an expense of 28 compared to Merck's at an expense of 25. J&J's forward PE is a decent 16 compared to Merck's, which is also around 16. J&J's dividend in Q1 of 2019 was $3.60 per share compared to Merck's at $2.20 a share. J&J is at $3.80 as of today and Merck is at $2.44. Now, I have a tendency to say Cadger rather than Cagger. I worked with a CFO of a public company for years who pronounced it Cadger instead of Cagger. So I got into that habit until another CFO I worked for later told me it was actually pronounced Cagger. So I'll try to get that right, but it's a hard habit for me to break. So I pulled these Caggers from Guru Focus. J&J's three-year dividend Cagger is an okay 6.3% compared to Merck's poor 3.2%. J&J's five-year dividend Cagger is an okay 6.4% compared to Merck's poor 2.7%. And J&J's 10-year dividend Cagger is a solid 7% compared to a weak one for Merck at 2.9%. Overall, I like to see a 7% dividend Cagger or higher. Now, since J&J's dividend increases by about 6-7% to per year on average, I like to see their net income also increasing at that rate, because I don't want to see their payout ratio continually increasing. So that's something you can consider watching and tracking in your investments. J&J's dividend yield right now is a week 2.41% as of the time I did this, as compared to Merck's, which is an also week 2.42%. Most everything has had a run-up in this bull market at a faster clip than dividend raises, slowly driving the yield down. J&J's 10-year estimated yield on cost is a poor 4.49% as compared to Merck's even worse 3.78%. J&J's 20-year estimated yield on cost is a mediocre 9.34% as compared to Merck's weak 4.28%. One thing I did here was unhide the columns that show what the estimated dividend will be in those years to better show you how I estimated the yield on cost in those years. So I take the Q1 of 2019 dividend and I grow that by the five-year dividend cadger to show what the year 10, 20, etc. dividend will be. And then I divide that by the share price. To be more accurate, I could estimate share price growing, which would then result in lower yields on cost as we go into time. But this is just quick back-of-the-napkin math that I use to get a more relative understanding of the differences between stocks as time goes on. Okay, and then we come to an important metric for me. We see that J&J has been consecutively increasing their dividend for 57 years, Thus, they are a dividend king. Mark is only at eight years. And in terms of payout ratio, we see that both of them are a bit over 40%. Okay, let's look at what's going on with shares outstanding. 
Johnson & Johnson's shares outstanding for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 were $2.7 billion, a 2.1% decline year-over-year, so a minor improvement. Merck's shares outstanding for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 was $2.6 billion, a 4% decline year-over-year. So these are trends we like, because we like to see less shares outstanding, as that means our shares are becoming more valuable. Companies typically issue more shares when they need to raise capital through equity financing or for reasons such as acquisitions and mergers, or internal reasons like exercising employee stock options and such. Finally, number six of six, is the stock price growing? To help us answer the question, is a company growing? So let's look at total returns of J&J compared to Merck and to the S&P 500 using Dividend Channel's Total Return Strip Calculator. This models what would have happened if you invested 10K around 25 years ago. We see that your 10K would have turned into about 148K for Johnson & Johnson, an awesome 1,383% return. Your 10K would have turned into a decent 80K for Merck, a 696% return. It's funny saying decent and 696% in the same sentence, as its return is way better than putting your money in the bank. Your 10K in the S&P 500 would have turned into about 90K, a nice 799% return. So J&J takes this one. Okay, let's move on to number two. Can the company cover what it owes in the next year? which is asking if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. It is important to compare ratios in the same industry due to fluctuations in what is normal. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter-term debt, whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that the company may not be able to pay off its shorter-term debt. So the higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. I like to see ratios between 1.5 and 3%. So we see J&J's current ratio is 1.26 compared to the industry median 2.1, which ranks them lower than 72% of the industry. Merck's current ratio is 1.26 compared to the industry median 2.1, which ranks them lower than 72% of the industry as well. The number three next main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it has taken on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. Remember, debt to equity is total liabilities divided by total equity. If the ratio is greater than one, the majority of assets are financed through debt. If it's smaller than one, assets are primarily financed through equity. I like to see between one to 1.5. A high debt to equity ratio is often associated with high risk as it often means a business is pushing for fast growth with debt. The average debt to equity ratio amongst S&P 500 companies is around 1.5. That being said, the appropriate debt to equity ratio varies depending on the industry because some industries use more debt financing than others. Capital intensive industries and businesses that have stable and recurring demand that remain stable relatively constant regardless of economic conditions often can have higher ratios. So companies with high ratios often include utilities, transports, energy, financials, telcos and such. J&J's debt to equity is 0.46 compared to the industry median 0.25 which ranks them lower than 93% of the industry. Merck's debt to equity is 0.84 compared to the industry median 0.25, which ranks them lower than 94% of the industry. So these management teams have honed their operations to run at these levels given their business models, so I'm not currently concerned. Let's see if we think they can cover their interest payments, so let's see if EBIT is at a reasonable level. Johnson & Johnson's EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $17.2 billion, a 9.4% decline year over year. Merck's EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $12.3 billion, a 52% increase year-over-year. Year. I normally like to see EBIT greater than or equal to three times net interest. Looking at their income statements, we see that both of them cover. So let's look at their return on equity, or their earnings power. Normally I like to see 10-15% to 15 to cover their cost of capital and make money for shareholders, but the more the better. 
So ROE tells us how much profit a company makes for every dollar it has in shareholder equity. ROE is the income that is being generated as a percentage of shareholders' equity, also known as book value. A large amount of intangible assets can make a company have a negative book value. So companies with lots of patents, which are obviously valuable, can cause you to be misled by its negative book value. We see that J&J's ROE is 23.8% compared to the industry median 3.78%, which ranks them higher than 89% of their peers. Merck's ROE is 34% compared to the industry median 3.78%, which ranks them higher than 95% of their peers. So both of them look excellent here. Please watch my AbbVie video if you want a more detailed explanation of ROE, which goes into some of its nuances. Okay, let's look at return on assets, ROA, as a measure of profitability. ROA will tell us how efficiently a company is squeezing profit from their assets. Return on assets is a measure of how well a company takes all the money it has and uses that to make more money. It's a metric which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what I look for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. J&J's ROA is 9.2% compared to the industry median 1.5%, which ranks them higher than 91% of the industry. Merck's ROA is 11.2% versus the industry median 1.5%, which ranks them higher than 74% of the industry. So both of them are doing much better than the industry medians. Some of these profitability metrics I've mentioned aren't always as useful to use in all industries. Like if they are asset light and they pay out their cash they earn it, like in consumer non-cyclicals. But since I've been including it in the series, I've shared them anyways. You can temper your enthusiasm for using it where you feel is appropriate. Okay, let's look at their return on invested capital trends. ROIC is a profitability ratio that looks to measure the percentage return that investors in a company are earning from their invested capital. So it's the residual value of assets minus liabilities. Thus, it is the amount of return a company makes above the average cost it pays for its debt and equity capital. I like to see ROICs over 2%, which means that the company is generating value for investors. If it's less than 2%, it means it's destroying value. So here we find J&J in blue and Merck in red. They are both generating good ROIC, other than J&J in 2017. Okay, the next profitability metric we'll look at is net margin. I like the net profit margin because it's a decent metric and just a single figure to gauge how effectively management is running the business. Net profit margins vary depending on the type of industry you're in. Watch my previous videos for more details. Solid net profit margins can mean a stronger company that is able to survive challenging economic times. J&J's net margin is 17.3% compared to the industry median 3.44%, which ranks them higher than 85% of the industry. Merck's net margin is 20.3% compared to the industry median 3.44%, which ranks them higher than 88% of the industry. So both are doing very well here. Okay, let's look at one final profitability measure, which is earnings per share, or EPS. EPS is a company's profit divided by the number of common shares outstanding. EPS shows how much money a company makes for each share of its stock. A higher EPS often means people will pay more for a company due to their higher profits. Sometimes people like to utilize diluted EPS rather than basic EPS in their analysis. Johnson & Johnson EPS for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $5.25, an 805% increase year over year. Recall that tax issue that happened in 2018. Merck's EPS for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $3.58, 186% increase year over year. So overall, J&J has a nice EPS growth increase over time with that dip in 2018. Merck is a lot bumpier, though recently it has come back well. Okay, let's move from their financials to their community involvement, charitable giving, and to their environmental, social, and governance work. Okay, question time. What's black and white and cute all over? 
Johnson & Johnson's pandas, that's what. Johnson & Johnson is working to protect giant pandas in China and they actually have adopted a few giant pandas, one of which is now named Johnson & Johnson. I'm assuming it's a boy panda with a name like Johnson & Johnson. One thing that is important to know about J&J is their company Credo which acts as their cultural north star. This Credo promises a lot. It was created by Robert Wood Johnson, their former chairman from 1932 to 1963. He created the Credo long before anyone had uttered the words corporate social responsibility. It isn't just their cultural compass, but is also part of what has enabled their incredible business success. This credo is now chiseled into the wall of J&J's New Jersey headquarters. It talks about how J&J will create quality products to help people achieve great outcomes. It talks about reducing costs. It mentions that the companies they work with should make a fair profit. It talks about how J&J will experiment and innovate to remain leaders in the medical community. It also talks about how their employees should be respected and should have solid jobs. They also promise to support charities, and it says they will always try to make a good profit for shareholders. It even talks about how they will have reserves to be able to make it through tough times. Aligned to that credo was the creation of the J&J Charitable Foundation, which has helped people around the world. They have donated to advance the position of women and children, to prevent diseases, and to strengthen the health care of workforces. J&J has some great goals for 2020, including that they want to number one, produce and donate 1 billion doses of Vermox to treat greater than 100 million children per year at risk for intestinal worms. Number two, they want to support the delivery of 6 million eye care screenings to underserved children. Number three, they want to reduce absolute carbon emissions 20% by 2020 and 80% by 2050. And number four, they want to produce and or procure 35% of their electricity from renewable sources by 2020, and they aspire to power all facilities with renewable energy by 2050. J&J is also currently in the top 25 of Newsweek's top 500 green rankings, a list which evaluates companies around the world measuring environmental friendliness. In fact, J&J even operates the largest solar power generator in the entire state of Pennsylvania. Okay, let's move to their executive team. The average tenure of their senior leadership team is around 22 years, which is way above the norm. Alex Skorsky is their chairman and CEO, and is just the seventh leader to have gotten that dual role since the company went public in 1944. He joined Janssen Pharmaceutica as a sales rep 32 years ago, and worked his way to the CEO role in 2012, which is awesome to see. He has been a longtime advocate of diversity and inclusion and a supporter of veterans' issues, and he currently sits on the board of directors of IBM. Alex graduated from West Point, served six years in the Army, and then, since he clearly wasn't accomplished enough, got an MBA from Wharton. So talk about your low achiever, lol. Okay, one way we can assess the CEO is on how their stock has done since they have taken office. Here we see J&J in black, Spy in purple, and Merck in blue. We see a very similar performance for all of them with SPY doing slightly better than the others at 138% return compared to 132% for Merck and 124% for J&J. So slight underperformance for J&J relative to the other two since the CEO has taken office, but still good returns overall. Okay, let's jump into concerns and risks. There are a variety of risks you need to be aware of that can impact a company like J&J, so I'll cover some of them. Product reliability, safety, and effectiveness concerns can have significant negative impact on sales and results of operations which can all lead to litigation and cause reputational damage and potentially worst of all, cause harm to consumers. The overall healthcare industry is at risk right now, especially based on which political party is in power. This could mean facing changing regulatory risk or something even more impactful to J&J. There is significant pressure to provide healthcare for lower costs, thus this evolving landscape could negatively impact them. The disparity in pharmacy pricing around the world could impact their US bottom line. Trump has called for a variety of solutions, but so far nothing has materially changed. 
This could impact the entire pharma industry depending on which direction things go. Losing patent exclusivity is a risk and or issue to be aware of. I was curious if a recession would be a material risk to J&J, so let's look at how they did during the dot-com crash and in the 2008 banking crash. We see J&J in black and the S&P 500 in blue and Merck in purple. And this shows another reason why I love J&J so much. It looks like J&J lost the least in their stock relative to the S&P 500 order Merck and then also gave the greatest return since 2000. That's amazing. Minimal downside, relatively speaking, followed by the most upside. How many other companies in the world have done that? Regulatory and tax changes could also impact them in a positive or negative way. Currency fluctuations could help or hinder them, given a material amount of their business isn't in North America. Tariff changes, economic sanctions, wars, and large political changes could impact them. As they've become more dependent on technology, then outages or cybersecurity incidents could negatively impact them. They also face strong competitors they deal with that are striving to take market share. Adverse outcomes of litigation could impact them, and there are a slew of lawsuits that J&J is involved in. This is probably the biggest risk of J&J's that is worth understanding. For example, they've had some issues recently with the opioid crisis, and I read some headlines about talcum powder concerns and risks. So I'd imagine that some risk-averse people are sitting on the sidelines to see how these various issues will play out before they buy more J&J. Of course, there are always trade-offs to sitting on the sideline. Another example was a case where J&J was apparently not sharing information of all the effects of certain medications, for which they agreed to settle. They were also involved with a series of litigations with Boston Scientific involving patents of heart stents, though this was settled and Boston Scientific agreed to pay them. Anyways, there are a bunch of lawsuits you might want to look into, and I often see more lawsuits with pharma players. I encourage you to dig into the very specifics if you're thinking of investing so you're armed with all the data. So those are the risks I thought of, but dive into their details if you are so inclined to be more thorough. So let's talk about what some of my thoughts are on price. Please watch my 3M video if you're interested in learning more about how you can value a business and more details about how you can use discounted cash flow to estimate how much a stock or business is worth paying for. For brevity's sake, I'm just going to use a DCF calculator on Guru Focus, which is a quick way to estimate it rather than the better way of calculating it yourself. So let's see what it estimates for J&J and Merck. We see that J&J's DCF fair value per this calculator is $56 versus their stock price at $149, which is a minus 165% margin of safety. Merck's DCF fair value here is $38 versus their stock price of $91-ish, which is a negative 137% margin of safety. So if you're just using these calculators, you would say that Merck's a better price to value, but both are too pricey. And remember, you can go to the calculator and change the default assumptions to see how the fair value is impacted. Of course, it's always better to calculate your own more accurate DCF if you don't feel like you have a good handle on what's a reasonable price to pay. Okay, let's take a look at their PEs. Watch my previous videos to learn some nuance about PEs and what I expect to see in different industries. We see that J&J's PE ratio is 28.4 versus an industry median 21 and a forward PE of 16.45. Merck's P.E. ratio is 25.4 versus the industry median 21 and a forward P.E. ratio of 16.21. So both are looking pricey based on these P.E.s, but both their forward P.E.s look decently compelling. Please watch my AbbVie video if you want to learn more about the S&P 500 P.E. ratios. Remember that the average P.E. across the S&P 500 is around a 15 or 16 if you go back to the beginning of the markets. However, some folks argue that more recent PEs are more reflective of what's normal given our changing conditions. So if you look at shorter and more recent timeframes, then the average PE is over 20. Of course, each industry has its own averages. Okay, another final metric I like to look at is how their dividend yield has trended over time as an input into my buying decisions. Here are the last 10 years of dividend yield trends for J&J &J and Merck. 
J&J's dividend yield is 2.55% as compared to the industry median 1.38%, which ranks them higher than 76% of the industry. Merck's dividend yield is 2.48% compared to the industry median 1.38%, which ranks them higher than 74% of the industry. Both dividend yields are lower than I normally like to see, which is low threes. J&J is mostly going sideways lately, though down from a decade ago. Merck is slightly trending down, which means it has been getting pricier relative to its value. Remember, yield is their annual dividend they pay out divided by share price. So if this line is flat, then it's one indicator that its relative price to value has stayed flat when looking at this metric in isolation. If the line trends downhill, then it probably indicates that it's getting pricier, and if it trends up, then it indicates that it's potentially becoming more of a price worth considering. It will have a tendency to trend up if they increase their annual dividend payout, or if the share price goes down. It will trend down if the share price goes up relative to the dividend payout. So the ideal is to buy the yield when it's high, and then see the line trend down because the share price is going up after you buy it. Of course, if the share price goes down, then your drip can buy more shares. Let's look at what analysts at MarketBeat said about J&J and Merck. So we see that J is a consensus rating of a buy, compared to the consensus rating six months ago of also a buy. Price today is around $149, and the consensus price target's around $159, which is a 6.9% upside. Merck's consensus rating is a buy today, compared to a consensus rating six months ago of a buy, and a price today of almost $91, and a consensus price target of $95 and about 90 cents. So it's a little over a 5% upside. So we see that the professionals believe that there is marginal upside for J&J and Merck with buy ratings on both of them. Now let's look at insider trading. We see a variety of transactions by their officers and directors. There are some decently sized transactions that might influence you. Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about how to read a form forward dealing with insider trading. So what about me? When did I buy J&J and what price would I want to see before I might be compelled to add more to my position? As always, don't take this as financial advice. So J&J was a company I used to own, then I got out of it for a reason I'll go into in a future video, and then I got back into it again in early August of 2018 at $131. Not a great price, but one that seemed reasonable to me given my belief in them coupled with my goals and financial situation. I then added more at $127 in September of 2019. Today's price of $149 is a bit high for my taste. That being said, I personally wouldn't feel terrible adding more even at these levels, especially since I'm in this for generations to come. I love J&J. It's one of my favorite companies. Ideally, I'd love to see a pullback to 100, but will we see that? I don't know. What I do know is that J&J is one of those companies that I feel good about as I build up my position in them. So for now, I'm just letting my drip do its magic. So what do you think? Are you a bull or a bear on J&J? You're going to buy, sell, hold, or keep looking. Finally, if you learned anything or enjoyed this video, then please don't forget to hit the thumbs up button and leave a comment, including your partner number, as a simple way to thank me for making this free deep analysis video of Johnson & Johnson. Adding your partner number to your comment helps me be able to then do shoutouts and visual acknowledgements of my subscribers who've watched and commented on most of my videos. With this J&J video, I'm hashtag partner30 because I've watched all my videos from start to end as well as left a comment. Thanks, and I'll see you in my next video. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it.
Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons, share this video with others, and comment below.